Hello, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk about all different types of riding, running, racing, paddling, kayaking, pretty much whatever sport we're into at the moment. I'm Molly Herford. I write about all things athletic and outdoorsy. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a kinesiologist in Ontario. I work mostly with endurance athletes, and I also like all sorts of movements. All right, so today is our July Q&A episode, but before we get into that, I'll say we've, we're out in BC now, we're in Squamish, and man, it is an athletic area, it's awesome. We're also, if you hear any jingling in the background, we are recording this with our co-host, uh, Wiki the Black Lab, she's joining us on the couch today, I don't know how many insights she's going to have, but... I do like a loner office dog. It's sort of my favorite thing. Well, we were out swimming with Wiki for probably a good 30 minutes. Wiki was in the water there swimming, which I think labs are built for swimming. So yeah, pretty impressive. She probably outswam me, but um, yeah, so she's a little tired. Yeah, she actually, we were lucky enough to go check out this lake, Cat Lake, for those of you who've been to Squamish, and it's got all these logs floating in the in it. And they're really awesome if you can get up on them and do sort of a lumberjack thing. And by the way, I would really love to get a lumberjack on here to talk about log rolling. So if anyone, See, I thought it was called log burling. I think it's log burling. But apparently that's not actually log burling. Okay, well, if anyone knows anyone who does the thing where there's a log in the water and you're running on it, we would very much enjoy having you on the podcast because I would like to get more confident at it. I thought someone did tell us that they knew like their cousin or something. My cousin. Your cousin log burls. No, he's actually a karate expert, but he knows a log burler. Oh. <laughs> we should also get him on. I don't know if calling yourself a karate expert makes you... I don't think he calls himself a karate expert. He just is a karate expert. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, Peter raced nationals last weekend. How'd it go, Peter? Yeah, mountain bike nationals. It was good. Surprisingly good. I ended up in the top 10 again, so going to have points for another year, and I guess I have to keep racing mountain bikes. So. Oh, man. If I'd known that was part of it, I would have sabotaged you. Yeah, it's unfortunate, for sure. Well. I do hate that mountain biking. I love the mountain biking. I don't love the racing every weekend. That's getting a little exhausting, which I shouldn't say. <laughs> I don't think given... we've raced every weekend. You've true. raced most weekends. I think I've only raced four or five times this year. That's not true. <laughs> Let the record show. There's been a lot more racing than just four times. I don't think so. We haven't had a free weekend in I don't know how long. Okay. We're definitely not going to have a free weekend this weekend. We are four days out from Peter's first triathlon, which is the Ironman Canada out here in Whistler. Uh, how, how is it feeling? Are you feeling ready? I feel pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns we're going to have to suss out in the last co- last couple of days here ahead of it, but I mean, I think that's normal, just sort of learning the event specifics and where stuff is and how you show up where at the right time and, and stuff, but no, we're just in the home run, or home run, the home stretch uh, where it just, you know, you sort of want to get pedaling a bicycle. So. Mm-hmm. I think maybe after it, we should do a short episode about i mean first of all just what we learned doing it but second maybe a bit about the logistics for people who are sort of thinking about attempting their first but are feeling a little bit baffled by the you know bag drop-offs and bike drop-offs and 
just all of the stuff that has to come together for you to get to the start line with all your gear in place. Yeah, I mean, I think probably both of us are, are looking at this as an opportunity to sort of suss out, you know, the, the do's and don'ts and the things you sort of have to do or the things we wish we did. So I'm sure there'll be a onslaught of media, mostly coming from Molly after after this experiment. And you call it an onslaught. That sounds less positive. Yeah, it's an onslaught. I'm sure. prolific. A, yeah. a, a prolific <laughs> onslaught. Um, anyway, yeah, we'll have to do an episode after that. But for now, if you're listening to this ahead of the 30th, uh, if you want to wish either of us luck over at, at Molly J. Herford or at Peter Glassford, we will happily accept any uh, luck and good vibes being sent our way that day. It's going to be a long day. Yeah, we'll post links on those medias on how you can follow along and mm-hmm. and see how, how how the things are progressing for me if I've gotten out of the water. That's gonna be a that's gonna be a good one. Yeah. But anyway, I think we can get into a bit of this with uh, with some of our Q and A's today. But let's let's get started. Uh, one thing that you've been getting asked actually a lot has been people who want these individualized training plans and they want to be following a training plan. But when they then list their, you know, five group rides a week and, you know, three group runs or all of these different group things, group stuff is awesome. But how do you balance, you know, hanging out with your friends and getting in these great group workouts while actually training for a goal? Yeah, it's definitely whether it's, you know, smart trainer videos or spin classes or CrossFit classes or anything like this. All this stuff is you know sort of sexy and you know addictive to go to and fun because it's social and fun because you get to go out and smash people and it's fine i mean you'll get fit you know pretty fit on that and you know it'll work for a while for sure um it'll work to get you fitter if it's more than what you're used to but certainly there's a sort of plateauing that happens with that and and often a fatigue that happens with too much of that so what i usually see is people come and they're sort of looking for help because that's getting too much and they're not seeing results you know there's there's something they want to do and they're not able you know they want to get faster and they haven't been able to they're getting tired they're getting burnt out they're getting sick too much you know or maybe there's a big race they want to do and maybe they haven't done as well in the past at it or it's just something completely different and and the struggle is that you know you got your weekly races and your weekly rides and your spin class and your beer ride and your whatever and sometimes those don't fit with that goal so the balance is really sort of finding what you you know what do you want out of the season if you come out of the season and you don't do those beer rides for a month while you're getting ready for something like a Leadville or an Ironman or whatever you know is that going to ruin your season that you weren't out at those uh, versus is it going to ruin your season if you pay for an Ironman or Leadville and then you go out and you do crappy or you DNF or you're not prepared or you know you're super nervous because you didn't prepare um and so I think that's a challenge a lot of people have is just sort of dealing with, you know, I have a goal, but I have this social mm-hmm. thing or this in, more enjoyable thing. Um, yeah. So how do you as a coach kind of put the two together? I'm probably too lenient sometimes with stuff like that. But I think what we'll do is, you know, if someone has five, that's a lot. That's every day. Yeah. Every day of riding for most people. So 
you know, we'll try and cut it back. What are the really the most important ones? Like what is the one that your best friends at or the one that's the, you know, fits the best as far as being hard or is the best, you know, this most competitive one maybe is a good way if it pushes you or on the flip side, maybe it's just the easiest one. Maybe it's one that you could, you know, go into a recovery day and, you know, chat with your friends and maybe you're riding with your spouse or something. So sometimes those fit, you know, pick the one that's actually the most important and then try and open up times where you can go and ride on your own or with one friend who's also doing that event who's sort of similarly minded. Um, and and then sort of just do that. And, you know, it's not forever. You can go back in the fall or after the event and do more of those fun rides for sure. But it's just sort of like there's seasons for everything, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this year you're doing this so this is you know you're going to go out and do more leadville specific or whatever the the challenges that you're doing something that's specific to you and you getting fitter Uh, because the reality is most group rides or again smart trainer videos or spin classes are going to really focus in on sort of that middle ground intensity you're not gonna you know you're never going to go to a spin class and get three and four and five and seven minutes of recovery between hard efforts and that's those are often the type of efforts that we need and on the flip side, we're not going to have a nice steady endurance ride in a group ride. You know, you're going to coast in and you're drafting. You're going to be pulling really hard. You're going to be sprinting and hill climbing and everything else. So the problem with group rides is that they're usually not addressing what most people need to do to get fit. And they're not addressing how most most events that most you know age group type people are doing. It, it's not really specific to it. Sometimes it has its place, but not always and certainly not every day of the week. Yeah. So I think the only other thing I'll add to that is the one thing we will do, especially if someone's pretty fit, is, and this is how I come to terms with, you know, getting some social stuff is, is A, I'm relatively fit, so I'm fortunate in that I can go and go on, you know, a lot of group rides and ride with people who, and be fairly comfortable Often I'll do like the B and the C group rides. They're usually more social. The people are pretty awesome on them. So, you know, I'll just sit and chat with those people and not be a jerk and lead up the the B and C group if you're too fit, right? You know, you contribute, but go on them and just enjoy that as an endurance sort of group ride or a recovery ride even. Um, And on the flip side, I'll also go and do intervals and then go meet a bunch of buddies and do a, a mountain bike ride for a couple hours. Um, and that way I get, you know, a three or four or five hour ride in, but, you know, I've done two hours on my own really hard and really targeted for me. And then I'll finish off, you know, maybe not perfect endurance or, you know, my best mountain bike pace, but you know, a lot of guys can ride pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go out and smash some group riding and that way, at least in the mountain bike, you know, I can practice following closer and, you know, closing gaps and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's still very beneficial, but I've gotten that like specific mountain bike workout in that I wanted to get in. And so that would be in the case in that mountain bike example would be like if I was getting ready for a marathon race, all of a sudden that group ride turned into a very specific, very beneficial thing. You know, if I'm getting ready for a, you know, six hour, seven hour Leadville attempt, you know, that would be something that would fit really nicely. Yeah. I think a couple things off that, like number one would just be, I think you need to kind of recognize you owe it to yourself that when you have a goal of a certain race or, you know, whatever that goal might be, you kind of owe it to yourself to do everything in your power to get there. So it's tempting to, you know, skip the training session for the donut ride. But, you know, if you have that as a, you know, if you have a goal that's a race, sometimes you gotta skip the super social ride um the second thing though is actually i was thinking about this do you ever have people where and i mean i think i'm one of these people you have to urge them to get out and do the group things 
Yeah, I mean, because I'm, I would call myself a fairly volume or endurance based coach, which isn't, I think maybe is deceptive in what it means. But I think if you looked at different coaches, I'm probably more aerobic. So do I, yes, I guess I do have to, there's certain people who have come from that, they consider themselves endurance athletes. So they're usually slower, you know, they never do intervals, they never do this. So for them, you know, they're missing tactics, they're missing sprinting, they're missing, you know, aggressive hill climbing, they're missing pace lining. Mountain bike skills. Um, yeah, I mean, mountain bike skills would fit into that too, and you'd maybe get that from a group ride and following closer and just riding a little quicker. So for sure, it's not that group rides are, are horrible, and that's where, you know, you go if you said something like you shouldn't do group rides if you're following a train plan, or you shouldn't do group rides if you're getting coached or following um, a training plan. That's not what I'm saying. You know, certainly there are some people where you'd have to put that into a training plan or, or add that to their, their weekly coaching programming. Um, to try and get that that training stimulus. Yeah, for sure. Um, and by the same token, like I might add that, like go do intervals and then go ride in a group ride. And certainly for a lot of road, like some of the more professional road people I've worked with, that's something that we'll do often is, you know, go ride for a long time and then, you know, they're going to meet up and do a two-hour group ride and then they're going to ride home or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or go ride for an hour, do the crit at night and then ride home from the crit or something. Then I got a bunch of masters men who do that thing and sort of thing in toronto and they get a nice three-hour ride with some intensity in um and for them that gets that social piece but it also gets that midweek sort of longer ride and that's you know for a lot of people a big boost yeah i will also pause here and do a mini commercial and say that peter's got awesome customizable three-month training plans over at smartathlete.ca so he does spend a lot of time kind of integrating those group sessions into his training plans yeah, I mean, I think reconciling sort of what people want to do versus what they need to do or mm-hmm. want to do, what they've signed up to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just, you know, sometimes just speaking, talking through that with someone and developing a plan helps versus, you know, you know, this thing's coming down the pipe, but you're, you know, sort of not ever planning ahead to deal with the group rides that are, you know, have always been there or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's sometimes just that sitting down and putting it on a piece of paper or, you know, in a calendar so that you sort of have a plan and know how long you've signed up for this thing. And, you know, then you can tell your friends, like, I'll be back in August after this Ironman is done and I'll be mountain biking again. More, mm-hmm. Peter promise. hasn't been saying that or anything. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think this Ironman thing has been a good similar thing for me right like I just haven't been able to mountain bike and you know it's there's a certain amount of time has had to go into that right it's Mm -hmm. you can only swim and run and ride a goofy bike so much and that cuts into mountain bike time right and so yeah so the last point I want to add to this is uh not I'm trying to figure out the polite way to put this and I'm just gonna throw my dad under the bus because he doesn't listen to this I don't think if he does dad I'm really sorry Uh, dad goes on a sweet group ride once a week with his mountain bike buddies from the bike club and it starts at 6 30 and runs till 8 30 during the summer so you get to the parking lot around 6 15 uh guys are there usually with beers and a box of donuts so you have a beer and a donut and you probably wait around for the guy that texts and says he's running a little late so we get started around 6 45 uh roll for about like 20 minutes or so you know, stop to wait up, hang out for maybe five minutes, roll a little more, roll a little more, stop to fix a flat, roll a little more, stop to fix another flat. 
get back to the parking lot, like 8.20ish or so. Another couple donuts, maybe another beer. And it's 8.30 when we're leaving. So the problem with that is, on the surface, it's a two-hour ride, or at least that's how it's listed on the website, right? Um, and obviously, if you're listening to this, you're like, duh, they didn't ride for two hours, but try telling any of those guys that. So I think just being careful with group rides that you're not considering uh, elapsed time versus roll time. Yeah. And thinking that you're doing a lot more than you actually are. I think that's particularly prevalent in mountain bike group rides. And that's not a bad thing. Like, he has an awesome time. And for what he's training, you know, to do, which is hang out with his buddies and drink beer and ride bikes, it's fantastic. Um, but I think, you know, if you're serious about training, just making sure you're being honest with yourself about what you're getting out of the group rides mm-hmm. is just super important. Yeah, and definitely, like, it with my kinesiology hat I spend more time with the sort of wellness piece and you know it's it's hard for people we, we think so much about nutrition and diet but we sometimes don't think a lot about sort of habits and habit pairing and how routines and different choices around those influence diet and then influence how we feel and body composition mood you know exercise capacity and, and that sort of stuff and yeah, it's it's a tough one for sure, but I, I think- mean, I'm all about the pre-ride donut. Let me just get that out there, but probably not a second donut when you've only really ridden like a soft pedal for 45 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Then the second donut might be overkill. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's not an easy fix, but for sure, if that doesn't fit in your goals, you know, maybe there's another group in town you can sort of find that same social thing in, but, you know, without the donuts and beers as much and stuff. But... Or just make sure you're the guy showing up pretty late, so you have to just get into pedaling and don't have time to yeah, eat the donut. That could for sure be part of the strategy, right? Like ride, ride to the thing, park further away on your bike, and then that way you can sort of roll in and chat during the ride, but then sort of... You know, you got to ride because it's getting dark, got to get back to the house. And then, you know, so you're to skip those parts of the ride. And, you know, then you're also getting more riding time in for the same amount of time, probably. So Bonus. that's definitely, you know, I, I use that tactic. I often do not park close to, you know, the race site or to the ride site just so that I can a get in a warm up on the road before mountain biking um, or before a group ride. But also it lets you sort of cut out on your own agenda, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the group ride's not going quite the way you thought, you can sort of veer off earlier. Um, yeah, it's sort of an underhanded tactic. But I mean, sometimes you have to if the again, if it's sort of influencing your habit or diet or goals, um, you know, you don't need to be a jerk or, you know, even explain it to anyone. You just yeah, yeah I rode from home today. You know, I had a little extra time, you know. Yeah, I'm crazy. Okay. Yep, and there you have it. So. All right, next question, and I love this. This one's for you, though, is This it? one's for me. Okay, so the question is, my GF, which I assume is a girlfriend and not like an acronym for their, their first and last name, but we'll call them, This her, her name is, uh, what's a girl's name? Gloria Festina, my GF, is complaining of numbness during rides, period, help, triple exclamation mark. Now, this isn't a question, but I'll let you infer one. Shout out to my lovely friend who I've known for a long time who asked this question um, because I'm very proud of him for going to bat for his GF on this, you know, particularly awkward topic. Also, props to the GF for actually telling him what the problem was. 
so any women or or men listening, uh, take note. It always makes things easier if you just say, hey, I'm going numb. Hey, I have a saddle sore. Hey, I'm chafing horribly. Um, obviously, this is my area of expertise. Uh, you can always find out more over at saddlesorewomen.com or with my book, uh, Saddle Sore, Ride Comfortable, Ride Happy, where I get into a lot of this stuff. But let's talk numbness specifically. So usually if you're going numb during a ride, that means there's a bit of a blood flow issue happening somewhere. Um, you know, usually it's because we're at kind of an awkward bike fit kind of situation where we're pressing some pretty soft tissues on the seat in a way that isn't necessarily doing us any favors. So my first, you know, immediate tip is always to, you know, take a look at your bike fit, whether that means you're going to an actual bike fitter or, you know, I am a firm believer in experimenting on your own, especially if you're not in any major like, oh my gosh, I have a big race coming up and like, I need to get this fixed. If you've got the time, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, trying to lower your saddle by a centimeter and, you know, seeing where you end up. Um, So that's sort of the number one thing. A lot of the time, people have their saddles at the wrong height. I'm really loath to ever say to lower your saddle because I think a lot of beginner cyclists tend to ride with it too low. But if you're having numbness, that's usually a pretty good indication that your saddle might be a bit too high because that means you're pushing down a lot more on that soft tissue as your hips go back and forth to try to push the pedals down. Um, So that would be my first thought would just be playing around with that a little bit. Definitely going to a fitter if like a few adjustments just aren't making any changes. Um, Another thought would just be that your bike seat sucks and you know cutouts sometimes can do wonders for women. Um, I also know a lot of women that don't like them but definitely and I'll get a little, you know, all our all of our lady parts are not created equal, so some women do better with a little bit of extra kind of space there that's open. Um, so, you know, considering a cutout, unfortunately, one of the follow-ups was, is there a perfect saddle? And sadly, I cannot claim to know one magic saddle that works perfectly for everyone. It's not like the sisterhood of the traveling pants where there is the one pair of pants that, you know, they find and it fits everyone. Um, That said, the Terry Bicycles, a women's cycling company, has a saddle called the Butterfly. And that one is pretty well known as a really comfortable women's saddle and they have it in a huge variety of price ranges and stuff. So that's often a good one to kind of start with if you're completely convinced that you need a new saddle. But bike shops often have saddle libraries uh, where they'll lend you one or there's like a trial period for them. So definitely don't think that the saddle that came on your bike is the perfect saddle for you. Um, Then my only other thing to add would be if you're having numbness in your lady parts and your feet and your hands, that's almost definitely a fit issue. And in that that case I'd probably send you to a bike fitter so that's that's sort of my quick and dirty answers there Peter anything to yeah I would make sure the seat isn't tilted up would be the oh other one. that's a good point like usually especially for men but women too like if the seats tilted up on a road bike and she doesn't it doesn't say what level she's at but if you have any sort of aggressive position where the bars are below the saddle once you rotate forward to touch the bars that upward 
saddle is going to provide like it's just going to make you numb and Mm-hmm. For men, that's usually when you get the burning pee sensation. Um, so if you're going to spend time in that aggressive position, then the seat has to be at least flat, if not pointed downward slightly. Yeah. Uh, which can be if the saddle has a bit of a saddle in it or a sort of it goes up and then down at the front. Um, sometimes it's further downward facing than, than you might think. Um, that's a great point and then the other thing is like there's they're now making more aggressive saddles so again this applies more to someone who's riding road fairly seriously or you know even an aggressive sort of mountain biking position but someone who's you you know you're going to ride the drops and your bars are going to be lower than your saddle um the major brands um the evil s and uh uh trek and sort of most of the saddle big saddle brands are going to make sort of more aggressive saddles for the road. Um, and then there's also a women-specific one I know with Trek as well for the aggressive position. Um, so I would look at that as well. And then it, it could be, you mentioned saddle height, it could certainly be a lower saddle or bars being too high. It could also, you know, you're not if your bars are too high, then you're not going to be able to distribute the weight between your hands and your butt mm-hmm. and your feet. Um, and by the same token, if your seat's too low, it's potentially just you're just going to be sitting really heavy on your saddle and not pushing through your legs enough and that happens a lot with beginner riders if their saddle's too low you know and they're not pushing very hard they're not putting in a huge amount of watts it's just all the time is spent sitting on their butt whereas a more aggressive rider or a more experienced rider is going to put out more power they're going to pedal more so every time they come through the bottom of that pedal stroke, they're going to apply an upward force that sort of unweights their butt a bit. Mm-hmm. And they're also going to stand more and that sort of stuff. So my only other point would be practice standing and so that you're able to adjust and give yourself a break, right, and sort of restore that blood flow. You should be able to sit for an extended period of time, but you know if you're doing a two-hour ride and never stand up, you're probably getting numb because you're sitting for two hours, right? You would get numb sitting on the couch for two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Standing is definitely a a huge one that we talk about all the time. It's sort of now that as you're saying, like not too high, not too low. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you kind of have to be Goldilocks in order to comfortably ride a bike. Yeah. The classic like mulligan technique is if you have your cycling shoe on and you put your heel on the pedals. So both heels on the pedals. It's sort of awkward to do it with smaller pedals, but um, you should be sort of able to pedal through the enti- back pedal through the entire strokes. You might do that on a trainer or have a friend hold it or put your hand on a wall and sort of st- you know sort of sit on your bike beside the wall and just if you can back pedal with your heels on the pedal, you're pretty close. Like there's a lot of other mulligan techniques to get into the right range, but that's usually a pretty good like you know you're not too high, you're not too low. If it's super comfy to do it with your heels then you maybe could add a little bit like if you're not getting to a full extension what should happen is that you're pretty much at the full extension of your legs um which means that once you add your sort of foot and ankle into the equation you'll get a little bit of a bend in your in your knees and a little more slack to get through that pedal stroke more comfortably Mm -hmm. all right my last tip is actually going to roll right into this next question that someone asked um so I'm just going to ask this one next. Uh, someone asked about bib shorts for cycling, just kind of what the deal is. She didn't really get if that was like a fashion thing or what the purpose was. So how this relates to the last question is I was going to say there are a lot of women's shorts out there that are so freaking compressing in the waist and like just cut your blood flow off 
like right at your well, waist. Even just crummy chamois too. Yeah. Which is mo- a lot of shorts. Most crum- shorts would be so non-bib shorts, so like a short with a waistband. Yeah, they tend to be a little bit cheaper, a little bit less well made. So you might have an issue with your chamois, or you know, I've definitely had shorts that were so tight in the waist, but like fit fine. Like they fit the way they were supposed to, but it was tight in the waist that like it would definitely, you know, I wouldn't be able to feel my toes if I hung out in them too long. It was like wearing compression tights. Um, So that could very well be an issue, which could be solved by drum roll bib shorts. So bib shorts are not a fashion thing. If they were, no one would wear them because they look stupid. Um, for those of you who don't know what the heck I'm talking about, they're the suspendery looking things um, that people wear, like you'll see pretty much every pro wearing. And that's because they don't give you that lovely cutting into your stomach muffin top kind of situation. They just sort of glide over nicely, which personally I prefer for photos because no matter how small you are, you will have a muffin top when you wear shorts. They also help, you know, avoid any gap between your shorts and your jersey when you're, you know, bent over and your jersey's riding up a little bit, which, you know, just not really a great, you know, look, but it's also just not comfortable or pleasant. Yeah, so they're more to avoid, like, it's just so that it's comfortable around your waist is, yeah. is the main reason, I think, for bib shorts. I don't know if there's a main other reason. As far as I know, but that is a reason enough. Like, I remember my first pair of bib shorts. It was the biggest game changer of my life. And I'm so glad. Like, when I started writing, they didn't really make that many for women. But now, pretty much every company has bib shorts for women. And it's harder to find, I think, shorts, too, that are nicer shorts. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of bib shorts. You can get crappy bib bib shorts, but most of the higher-end shorts or higher-end chamois are in bib shorts. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, did you ever wear shorts? Like, do you ever remember wearing shorts? Oh, yeah. 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 I actually really like them. You're weird. Yeah. I actually did for bicycling, and I'll have to try to see if I can pull it up, um, an article a year ago where I rode in original bike shorts for a few rides to see how that felt. It was a leather chamois. So yeah, those nice cushy chamois that we have now, that's not what chamois were originally like. They were actually originally like literally leather. And the point wasn't to provide any kind of cushion. It was to provide like a anti-friction, anti-chafing kind of thing. So chamois cream was actually also initially invented to soften the leather, not keep our, you know, lady parts and boy parts smooth. So crazy bike history there. Uh, Also incredibly uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. Just worst thing ever. If anyone listening has been riding since those days, I salute you because if I had ever put on a pair of those when I first started riding, I would have been a runner for sure. Right. (laughs) Anyway, let's take a quick break for a commercial and we'll be right back. Consummate athletes like you know that proper nutrition is super important, but that finding the right balance can be super complicated. 
Fuel Your Ride is a comprehensive guide to performance nutrition for athletes that provides all the tools that you'll need to customize a unique nutrition plan to achieve maximum performance. This book teaches riders from everything from what to eat on race day to how to avoid the dreaded bunk to how to lose weight while consuming enough nutrients and how to power hard during your training. Fuel Your Ride combines the expert advice of numerous nutritionists, coaches, and professional cyclists to present a simple, clean, and whole foods approach to eating complete with easy-to-follow recipes that include delicious and nutritious, vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free options, among many others. Visit consummateathlete.com backslash shop to find out more info or to buy the book, and we'll include a link in the show notes as well. And we're back. So this next question I thought was really interesting because being as it's, you know, hot during the summer, but people are still really into eating real food on the bike. So this woman is wondering, she likes the idea of eating real food on the bike, but she's worried about how to deal with it when it's hot out because I mean, you know, your food is melting. It's a problem. So what do you do? Have you figured out any you know, tips or tricks to keep your bars from melting in your pocket. Why are the bars melting? I mean, if you have like a muffin in your pocket and it's 100 degrees out. Well, it must be a chocolate muffin. It could get pretty gross pretty quick. The first answer is probably you don't have chocolate muffins. But what if you really like chocolate muffins? It's not an option. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I always think more, you know, what is the goal, right? Like a, I like the paleo diet, but, you know. A triathlon isn't necessarily a, a paleo activity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain convenience to a lot of these prepackaged things. Um, they don't. A lot of them don't melt. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are pretty digestible. Like, and that's that's really the nice thing was, you know, if we're just riding, then that's a different story. You know, you could certainly do like a banana loaf or, you know, a sandwich or something like that. But, you know, so I think the first thing is the real food idea is really nice, but I think we want to use sort of a mixed strategy when we can and think about sort of what the objective is in the thing. So, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to vilify gels and bars and pre-made stuff because there is a convenience to them. You know, they've been manufactured and tested for that, that stuff. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think I just was giving a couple of talks about the same topic where I was saying the latest trend in sort of sports nutrition has been this uh, unprocessed processed food, for lack of a better term, where we're getting things like the, you know, gels that are maple syrup instead of actual gels, like right. untapped, which is pretty delicious. You know, just lots of stuff that's being made with a lot more natural ingredients, and it's really simple. Um, Cliff is doing some cool stuff and I mean they've always been kind of at the forefront of like pretty real real food within their yeah even their the mixes. even the sugar powder companies are starting to do a lot more that's like just the sugar and then you're not worrying about like color stuff and mm-hmm. everything else yeah like noon definitely switched away from uh, even artificial sweeteners in the last year which is pretty awesome um, I've been absolutely obsessed with Cliff Bar with uh, the peanut butter in it lately, and I think that's sort of my real food solution. It's it's a little bit less gross than gel after gel after gel, but it's not quite me trying to yeah unwrap a piece of banana bread or something out of my pocket. Um, bananas actually would probably be a really good solution as they are, 
you know, pretty well contained. And unless you're only going to eat half of it at once, then it's going to get disgusting. But yeah, a lot of people in the heat too have trouble uh, eating a ton. Mm-hmm. You know, you're running into a, really a blood flow issue where it's hot, so your a lot of your blood is being used for cooling at the skin. Um, so it's it is harder to digest food when you're working hard, but then also it's hot out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my only other caution would be just be careful. You know, a, a banana is probably okay, but it might be the time where you're starting to look at, you know, some of the more you know drinks or or something like that to try and get electrolytes and water and and some carbohydrate in. Absolutely, especially actually to this person's point, she says she occasionally gets sick when she's riding um sort of around eating so i think she probably runs into a situation similar to mine or my previous one where she would tend to go until she starts bonking and when she's already in the bonk that's when she starts trying to like slam a bunch of food and that's actually what happened to me during my first iron man yeah was i bonked hard during the run but at that point anything i tried to put in my stomach was just kind of coming right back up yeah and a triathlon it definitely has to be done earlier in the bike and you have to stay on top of it um but i think a mixed strategy too you know you're getting sick of it you know whenever someone says they're getting sick of it you know it is possible to use and and advisable to use different sources because you know even if you look at different sources of carbohydrate you're going to have different carriers to get those into the into the system get them digested so using a mixed strategy you're able to get in more but you're also able to avoid, hopefully, some of that, you know, gut rot or that, you know, just too much water in the gut. And then you end up with a, a bathroom stop because you've overloaded the system, right? And that could be with too much sort of bulk in the food from real food or that could be too much of a, you know, a really sugary sort of um, the osmolarity of your sort of sugar drink might be be off, right? And just too high, too much sugar as mm-hmm. a percentage. Um so yeah so i think something like you know you could certainly get a lot of these sugar powders there's now ones that have basically no taste there's ones that are very low on the sweetness um there's some that are just taste more like a light sort of lemonade sort of or citrus type thing so they're pretty pleasant like a lemon water to sort of drink but you get your calories in some electrolytes in and if you mix that then with some food and make sure that you're getting in enough water the other sort of common issue with real food stuff is you know you, you swallow that whole pizza or banana loaf or whatever but you're not putting enough water in the system you may as well have just drink you know some super heavy processed sugar powder because your gut which doesn't have a ton of blood in it you know is going to have trouble processing that while you're working mm-hmm. all right i think that pretty much sums that up all right so the next question is one i think you were getting quite a bit at nationals and i mean you were seeing a lot of riders struggling with this so for those of you who haven't watched like a mountain bike race a lot of features so like you know scary drops big jumps stuff like that will have a beeline um so the a line is the scary thing the beeline is sort of the it's going to take you a little longer to navigate it because they want you to do the a line but the beeline is easier but will cost you time. So when should a rider take the A-line? Do you have any tips for sort of making that decision? Yeah, and I think this could apply to road, you know, a speed, you take a a corner or, Mm -hmm. you know, going into a corner on someone's wheel or the level of group ride you're in. Yeah, Um, you talk about this even on like group mountain bike rides or even on a mountain bike ride, right? 
really any any cycling discipline you know there's going to be something that's the next step up right you know something that makes you nervous and you're you're thinking oh i'm going to try this or this time i'm going to stay on the wheel through this corner or you know i'm going to lead out the group um but i guess specific to mountain biking so you have your a line it's like a jump and then the ride around or the easy way um the chicken line they also call it is that's very mean you know um it's sort of like a zigzaggy thing that's going to really slow you down sometimes even make you walk for a section um or it's just simply you're gonna have to walk something you know you might have to jump off your bike and dismount and sort of run down it um so when do you decide i I like to use sort of i always ask athletes like is this a 10 and a 10 um and, and what i mean by that is you know are you sure you're going to do this and I want to know that they're sure they're going to do it. You know, it might be a 9.5 or a 9 out of 10, but if it's a 1 out of 10, and you'd be surprised how often it's a, like throwing yourself off of a cliff and hoping you're going to fly, you know, and that works out. Often it's our head that's sort of holding us back. So you probably get 3 out of 10 when you think it's a 1 out of 10, but that's still unacceptable. That's not, you know, a race strategy, and that's not a, you know, a longevity strategy. Like you're going to end up with concussions, and you're going to end up with knee issues and stuff like that, and back issues, and you're just not going to continue in the sport. Um, and the reality is that you're not progressing, you know, so that you understand the foundations of that movement. You know, if we're talking about jumping, you know, you haven't established a bunny hop. You haven't gone out into a field, learned to hop over a stick. You know, often you're missing a manual, a wheel lift. Um, you know, and any sort of bunny hop. You haven't bunny hopped, you know, to get a little bit of a jump off of a rise. Um, so then why would you go and throw yourself off of a massive jump with a gap, you know, where you might clear it and it might work out, you know, someone else will take the wheel for you and, and guide you through the air miraculously and you'll pull it off and <laughs> ride your wheel, you know, in a nose wheelie across the field and, you know, you continue. But it often doesn't work out like that. So... What I usually say is if it's not a 10 out of 10, we take the B line. You know, if we can't do it, you know, three times, three is a nice round number. If you can't do it three times in a row in a race, take the B line or run it. Um, so that's that's usually how I do it. And, and it doesn't mean that you can't. It just means that you're going to have to, you know, put that on your list of what we're going to train. Just like if you blew up because you couldn't handle flat power or, you know, there's two, one too many 30 second hills in your crit. You know, you'd go away and train 30-second efforts or threshold, you know, so you can stay in the group longer and handle those late accelerations. So, you know, for you, jumping is going to go on that sort of list of qualities we have to develop, and we'll go back out to that field, and we'll learn how to do a manual, and then we'll learn how to hop over a stick, and then we'll learn to hop, you know, gap between two sticks, and then we'll learn to hop bigger sticks, and then we'll go and try and learn on the pump track a little bit, and then we'll try and get air off of a little uh, hump or off a little whoop. Um, and then we'll go and do a tabletop and then we'll go and do a, a gap, you know, a small gap, a small double. And then we'll go to that big double and we'll do it, um, you know, and then next year or next event when there's a gap jump and there'll be another one if that's your discipline. If that's if you're going to go and ride again, there's always something similar. Um, that's how you get there. But it's not it's not there's no new things on race day. We should our, our skill. What's this phrase I use? Ah, the margin skill. Uh, I guess I don't use the phrase that much. Apparently not. I'll interject here and say, I think a lot of people actually would struggle with telling you they had 10 out of 10 on something, even if they were actually like quite competent, because frankly, as athletes were kind of, you know, anxious, nervous wrecks, 
So I'm going to just throw a quick little PSA in. I've actually been reading with my club over on the outdooredit.com, The Athletic Bookworms, which, by the way, I really want to get t-shirts made. I'm trying to figure out if I can make a picture of like a worm, like with a sweatband and like maybe on a treadmill reading a book. I don't know. Did you ever see Earthworm Jim? Yes. Yeah, that's what you should do. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Okay, so new idea. Uh, You can find those t-shirts at some point in the next month. But anyway, uh, we've been reading this book, The Brave Athlete, um, and there's a ton about building your confidence as an athlete and not building it in like a jackassy, like overconfident when you shouldn't be kind of way, but in, you know, exercises that really make you think about who you are as an athlete and where you're actually at. So I'd say if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, there's nothing I'd say would be 10 out of 10. You might actually also need to work on your internal confidence. Yeah, for sure. And that's something we do. Skill reserve is the, the term Beautiful. that I do use. And and we use that in strength. So there's strength reserve. So if you can lift a 200-pound barbell, you can probably lift a 100-pound barbell all day long. So if I can hop a five-foot log, anything that comes at me in a race is going to be fine. They never mm-hmm. put five-foot logs. Um, that would mean I probably have the bunny hop world record, by the way, but... Uh, I was going to say, which can I you do, do that? <laughs> no, but you get my point. So if I can hop a 10-foot gap or jump a 10-foot gap, like at Nationals, there was, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe a 5-foot gap or something. I just didn't even have to think about it. And that's what you want in a race is that when you're drilled and cross-eyed, you just do it. Which I will point out, Peter definitely was during this race. Yeah, it was a hard one. So, I mean, by the same token, a crit rider on the road needs to be very good at cornering and following a wheel. If you fall off the wheel... But you have to follow the wheel when you're cross-eyed. So you need to be very good at following wheels and keeping space and reading what the group's going to do. And, you you know, you develop that skill. Um, a cross-rider who wants to hop barriers, you know, or a cross-rider who wants to dismount, you know, you're practicing dismounts. Jeremy Powers practices dismounts all the time. So, you know, you need to be practicing these skills all the time, but progressing them. So in cyclocross, it might be slightly higher barriers or more technical barriers or faster barriers, dismounting faster. You know, if you're used to hitting a barrier way faster than you would normally hit in a race, you know, or, or way more tired or whatever, right, under under fatigue. So building that skill reserve is important and, and progressing towards those those things that you anticipate coming at you in a race. Perfect. All right, and our last question for this month. Are off weeks for training truly off completely or should you do something? And the consummate athlete in me is so excited for this question. Uh, I believe there's no off days is a, is a quote. I'm not sure who that's really attributed to. I'm really worried you just attributed like a total like doper quote or like or just going with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you're going to take off days in general, but there's two thoughts there with no off days. So. You really want to avoid too many zero training stress days. Um, If you subscribe to sort of a TSS performance manager chart, the zero TS days, TSS days, zero stress days, so zero riding days uh, or running days, um, those definitely pull down sort of the progression of things. Now that's not to say you don't take off days. I I would use one off day a week. Um, and one light day probably for most people as well. But you just want to be careful that you're not a lot of zeros in that sort of, you know, zero riding days 
um, are going to be tough. So certainly even an off week, we're going to keep that frequency of riding about the same. Maybe you drop one day out of that. Um, but you definitely want to keep that feel for the bike. We'll usually do testing towards the end of that week. Um, but just light ride. So I think an off week is more of a rest week or in strength training. Again, a lot of times there's good like common sense in strength training stuff. And for some reason, it, we don't really, it's not as common in knowledge and endurance training, but it's a deload week. So you're taking the load out of the week. So just don't rush. You know, you're just going to go out. If you do a Tuesday group ride, just go out and ride for an hour. Super soft. Keep it, you know, the classic walk on a bike is I think an Eddie Merrick's thing. Um, that's probably not true but I believe it was Eddie Merrick said you know like a walk on the bike or you know a joke for real thing is never hit the big ring keep it in the small ring the entire time flat terrain not group rides um, coffee shop rides are great um, and then yeah some sort of tr sort of testing is usually advisable toward the end of that week or at least the next week back um, and then another thing is that you know as you get to know yourself as an athlete and your goals and your schedule and stuff a week like is arbitrary so it might be that you do well with a three or a five day deload and then you can go back so i do have athletes you know who especially if their training load isn't super high will still take a deload period fairly regularly but it might only be you know for a working athlete if you give them their evenings back and you know it's just a, a 30 minute spin on a tuesday you know maybe a little light strength thing on wednesday thursdays maybe a little opener or you know small test or something a three minute effort friday's an off day yoga day massage day whatever you know they're going to feel so good they're going to get an extra hour of sleep and then you know you can go right back to it on the weekend for a lot of people because they're not carrying a huge block of training whereas if you had a 30 hour week and you're a professional road rider it might take you more or less it really depends sort of what your your ability to recover is so answer to the question is yes you have to ride on an off week the other thing i want to add to that is the average person to like maintain reasonable health avoid risk of diabetes and heart disease and all that is supposed to be walking thousands of steps and we definitely see, you know, a lot of athletes when they take an off day, they're like full on, like on the couch, like Netflix, whatever. And like maybe once in a great while, that's fine. But like go on a walk, like you'll feel so much better for that's it. That's true. I think it depends on your goals for sure. And, and from a consummate athlete standpoint, you know, as part of that deload week could be doing different activities. Certainly walking should be part of your everyday. Yeah. Like I don't care how pro um, you are, like probably a walk during a rest week is not a bad thing. And your movement practice of mobility, sort of yoga, whatever you sort of like doing, you know, a light sort of strength workout, again, deloading your strength, but going through motions, you know, a deep squat, arms are overhead, that sort of stuff. Um, is is important too because you do have to keep moving as a person yeah and um, then i think my last thought on that though is like if you're just feeling super unmotivated if the idea of riding just seems pretty awful then you know what maybe a couple of days off the bike actually wouldn't be that bad if you're getting in the walks and the yoga and all that stuff it'll remind you that you actually miss the bike instead of forcing the biking that's definitely important yeah and that's where you know if it's if you're going just by a, a joe frill or a sort of textbook style training plan and you're feeling burnt out um you know it might be that you do need time off and then you need to reassess sort of how hard you're driving that training stress ahead of time and it might be the only other thing i had was we do take weeks, you know, in 
sort of a textbooky standpoint, you may call it a transition week or a, I'm trying to think of the other phrase for it, but sort of almost an off season, but often that'll come sort of right after an A race. It's pretty textbook or Joe Friel sort of book style uh, to take a, a week away from the bike the week after a peak. Um, so if you do have a big event like a, a Leadville or your nationals or provincials or whatever, even if you plan on training through the summer or training through the fall for cyclocross, it is good practice to sort of lock up your bike and you know not ride them and, and take a transition week. Um, and again, that week might be a three-day or five-day. It might be a week at the cottage with your family. Um, Shipping and, your and bike back to Ontario after Ironman. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's definitely, there are weeks where you might not ride. Again, I think Molly's point to the, we're all consummate athletes here and we can walk and and you know get that active recovery you know rather than a walk on the bike we could actually just take a walk but so generally yes our off weeks are just you know whatever our sport is we continue doing our sport to keep the feel for it but we deload um, and then once or twice or I guess maybe three times a year when you have a peak um, or you're just feeling burnt or a family vacation comes along certainly that full off week is, is a great idea it's going to recharge your body let you repair some of those overuse you know even just niggles um, and that motivation is going to be sky high when you come back. That's what happened to you when we took two and a half off in Ireland. Yeah, that year, like I have been very bad in my career and that's stymied, I think, some of my peaks um, by not taking enough of an off season. Um, but in Ireland, we just walked and ran and zero bikes and Peter came back and had the best season he's had in years. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty good. And I was just really amped to ride. And yeah, I think it let probably a bit of I don't know what to call it overtraining, but a little bit of chronic fatigue sort of come out of that for sure. Absolutely. All right. So we will wrap up there. Guys, we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions. It doesn't have to be about endurance sport, any strength training, any crazy, like if you want to know about dodgeball tactics, whatever, we will try to find the answers. We are not dodgeball experts, but we will figure them out. So you head over to consummateathlete.com you can leave us a message with your question we'll get to it next month um, if you haven't already head over to itunes subscribe rate review we'd be very very grateful uh, thanks for tuning in and have a consummate athlete e-week thanks thanks so much for listening to the consummate athlete podcast we would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.